Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Ephesians 5. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. As you're turning, I'm going to welcome up uh, Mrs. Brittany Reedy. Is going to come to lead us in our scripture reading. Yeah, we can celebrate her. We don't golf clap people in this house, okay? Um, And if you would, once you get to Ephesians 5, if you would turn, or if you would stand with uh, Brittany and I, as she's going to lead us in our scripture reading out of Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come to you this morning again with an intentional focus on you, gearing our hearts now to be receptive to you. You work through your word, God. It's your truth that sets us free beyond emotion, beyond opinion. We're here to follow you, Jesus, into what you have for us in every arena of our lives, even the arena of marriage. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask today that you would um, be the helper for all of us, me as I'm teaching, us as we're learning, and that ultimately you would speak to us and lead us into a greater understanding of of what you have for us, Um, not just in our relationships here, but ultimately with you. God, we invite you to come now in a powerful way. Holy Spirit, we invite you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. The book of Ephesians that we just read out of is a first century letter that the great Apostle Paul penned to a small church plant in modern-day Turkey, or Ephesus. This was a church that Paul had a pastoral heart for. He was integral to their inception and birthing as a church. And from a distance, he's pastoring them through his words in this letter. As he's writing to them, he is seeking to further help them to, to become further rooted in Christ. That's really the big preposition that's used in this book, used over and over again, that two-letter word, simply that preposition in. Um, 
We tend to think more about the Christian life as living like Jesus or living for Jesus. But Paul has a theology of, of, of the Christian life as, as being one that's lived from being in Christ. It's more of a position we live from rather than a lifestyle we try to live to. And, and we got to get that order right in our lives. We have to be first properly rooted in who Jesus is. And most importantly, what he's done and what we've received in him. Everything good in our lives will flow from being rooted in Christ, knowing who we are and what he's done and who we are in him. And so that's really Ephesians. Uh, Paul is like basically just unpacking all the implications of what it means to be somebody who's been positioned in Jesus, who's been saved, removed from just your state in and of yourself and placed through the gospel and the work of Christ in Christ forever. And Paul is unpacking that. And every week as we look at a different section, uh, we're really just kind of exploring all the different aspects of life in Christ. Like, what does it actually mean? And, and there has been a wide variety of implications. Uh, you, you could say that to be in Jesus, after reading Ephesians, is to be in the best possible situation imaginable. There's no better place to be this morning than in Christ. And to be in Christ is our greatest hope. And, and so Paul's been unpacking that. And it's interesting, as we get towards the end of his letter here, we're making a shift towards our final lap. Who knows how slow or fast we will run this lap. Time and will only tell and God only knows. But I have some idea, some idea. But at least here in this section, as we make the final turn, Paul is shifting his almost focus to an, a very important area of our lives in Christ, and that is our relationships. It's going to be the focus here for the next month or two. Our relationships in Christ. Here's the big idea, okay? The transformation of, of Christ in our lives affects everything. It's not just this like linear spiritual thing that has to do with me and Jesus. But Paul would say to be truly transformed by the gospel is to be different in your relationships. And we would love to separate those two things, wouldn't we? It's just easier because of how messy relationships are. Like my relationship with myself is messy enough, okay? I can wrap that around me and God and him fixing that. But, but to have a relationship with God that's deeply interwoven with your relationships with your fellow man, well, that's the Christian message. That's what Jesus came to preach. You have verses in John that's like, man, if I don't love my neighbor and say that I love God, I'm, I'm a liar, it's like, ouch, John, be nicer, okay? That's, that's hurtful, but, but, but helpful truth in a lot of ways. And, and so that's what Ephesians 5 through 6 is really going to get into, uh, specifically three spheres of relationship that the gospel transforms in our lives and how, really how we ought to think about them and navigate them. Here's the three spheres we're going to be looking at. The sphere of marriage, the marriage relationship. The environment of family the family relationship, how the gospel transforms how we navigate family. And then lastly, vocation, how we navigate our work, whether as employers or employees. And as you already know, this morning here in these rather familiar and famous verses, Paul is dealing with marriage in Christ. This is the first aspect of relationship that Paul is going to say the gospel transforms. Now, um, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of, that's why I say I don't know how long or fast this, uh, this final lap is going to be. 
Um, this is a very, again, famous and familiar passage that deals specifically with the different roles and responsibilities within a marriage relationship. How basically a married couple is able to minister to each other well in such a way that they reflect Christ to the world. That's what Ephesians 5 is. And let me say this, next week, Next week, we're going to go verse by verse in detail to the passage that Brittany read over us, and we're going to go back through and explore and unpack what the Spirit is saying through this section. Uh, What I thought would be important for this morning, before we just get into how a wife is to serve and love her husband, how a husband is to serve and love his wife, I wanted to get into some first foundational work around the topic of marriage, Because not only does this passage give us some like play-by-play details of how to have a healthy marriage, but this passage also gives us a robust vision regarding the nature of marriage, the essence of marriage. I mean, another way to think about this is like how we should think about marriage. Um, you don't need me to remind you that there are a lot of varying opinions and perspectives regarding how to think about marriage. Even if we don't agree with that, the truth is, even in this room, uh, largely based on upbringing, not just what we've been taught, but what we've caught, we all have our own way to think about marriage, whether it's been modeled really well or, or not. We have our own preconceived ideas about what marriage is and how it should look or how it, maybe for most of us, it's like how we know it shouldn't look. Um, but it's everywhere. Um, not just varied thinking, but let's just be real. There's a lot of broken thinking, a lot of flawed and broken thinking about this incredible relationship, the marriage relationship. I mean, let's first start with culture. I mean, I don't need to you know, do too much to, to convince you of this, but when you look in culture, just a quick commentary. Here's my own perspective. As we look out in culture, it's a very interesting one, the way that culture thinks about marriage. It's there. Um, And culture has this unique way of viewing marriage as both everything and nothing at the same time. Let me unpack this a little bit. First, culture has a way of looking on at marriage as being, first of all, everything. It's literally everything. It's kind of the focus of most movies. Some of our favorite say yes to the whatever dress TV shows are centered around marriage and the wedding day uh, last year. There was an estimated 2.6, there were an estimated 2.6 million weddings in the U.S. The average cost of an American wedding last year was $30,000. So some simple math, I use a calculator, would lead us, that's just what you say to sound smart, some simple math, you know. Um, you know, 2.6 million times 30,000 gets us to $78 billion that was spent last year on the big day. It's in pop culture, it's in media. Chance the Rapper has a whole album called The Big Day that's all about marriage. I know we all know that. It's certainly at the center, not just of movies and TV shows and general culture, it's at the the center of pop culture. Whether it's royal weddings that we wake up at 4 a.m., by we, I mean my wife, uh, to watch. Or celebrity weddings that we're fascinated with, whether it's the fifth, sixth, or seventh one, right? Who's with who? Who's married to who? Who's back together? Who's no longer together? Will Taylor ever get married? Um, Our culture seems to elevate marriage as everything. It seems to be quite central. And, And certainly, this is true in the political sphere as well. 
marriage, again, I don't need to remind you, it's one of the most polarizing hot topics along the political landscape of our culture. So it's everything. Yet at the same time, in our culture, marriage is nothing. It's everything, but yet in terms of its substantiality, in terms of what it really is, as something to rely on and live towards, marriage is sort of perceived and described as as nothing. Here's four words that I would use to give my uh, understanding of how culture sees marriage. It's kind of whatever, whenever, with whoever, however. First, it's whatever. It's kind of whatever. Like, it's a big deal, but really, and you'll hear this on podcasts, TV shows, movies. I hear this when I talk to people all the time. Marriage and culture is kind of whatever. It's, 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 have you ever heard this phrase? It's just a piece of what? Paper. It's like, why do I even need to do that? It's like, okay, we've been living together this long, and we certainly love each other, and in our hearts there's this level of commitment. Uh, you know, marriage is just kind of whatever. It's everything, but it's also nothing. It's like, I guess we'll, we'll get the paper, and you know, we'll join our net worth and build a better life together. It's very practical in that regard. It's also kind of whenever. It's like, I guess we'll get around to it. You know what I mean? It's like we've been together this long now, and we're practically married, you know. Um, this is my favorite. Like, we're married in God's eyes, you know. Um, we haven't formally entered a covenant or anything. But anyway, you know, um, it's kind of whenever. Whenever we get around to it. You know, maybe when we're in our late 30s, we want to settle down and have kids. But, but it's certainly not prioritized. Do you understand? It's kind of whenever I, I get to it. Uh, it's also whoever. I mean, certainly we know that there's implications to this with gender and the redefinition of marriage to be whoever you want to be married to. But it's also, it's whoever in, in the sense that the standards for who we're marrying are pretty abysmal. They're pretty low. Uh, they're, they're usually selfish in nature, like I just need to be completed, so I guess you're the one, okay? It's kind of whoever, not completely, but in some degree. Uh, and then lastly, it's, it's sort of however. It's how, however, however it works. It's definitely not forever. It's more however. We'll, we'll kind of enter into this thing. It's everything, but it's also nothing. You know, so, um, you know, in California, you can rent your wedding band. Did you know that? You can rent it. You're like, I'm, I'm just, we're going to go year to year on this thing. We're going to do a year to year lease. Does that work? Here's the terms. We'll find out next year if we want to keep this thing going, okay? Just got back from California. I can promise you it's true. That happens over there. Uh, but this is the cultural understanding of marriage. It's sort of whatever, it's whenever, it's whoever, it's, it's however it, it, it works, works out. I'm not saying this angrily or pridefully. I'm just saying this objectively. This seems to be the perspective of our culture. It's both everything... And yet it's nothing. Uh, Listen again, $78 billion spent on weddings, which would seem like a lot of sacrifice, yet marriages are ending each and every day without any desire for a greater sacrifice for it to continue. It's such an interesting upside-down thought process. Now, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that whenever a, a follower of Jesus or a Christian is going to make a observation about culture, that that observation must be made first introspectively. The way Jesus said it is like before you look at the speck of sawdust in, your, in the culture's eye, make sure you get a good double take in the mirror to make sure there's not a two by four coming out of your head showing your own hypocrisy. Another way the Bible says it is this, let judgment begin where? In the house of God. And I hate to say it, but it's just true to say that it's kind of similar in the church. 
In the world of the church, in the world of, of the followers of Jesus, we, we also have our own, ver- our own broken version of making marriage both everything and nothing. We have first our own broken version in the church of making marriage everything. And if you're a single person, you know what it's like to be crushed under the weight of this. We, we definitely have, I think, somewhat of a, of a reactive, good, healthy view that marriage is important. We know Genesis 2, it's not good for man to be alone. There is this desire and this need, and there's this healthy thing to not put off what is a very important relationship and is central to the human project there in Genesis. But we have, in a lot of ways in the church today, we have elevated marriage to be something more than it was ever intended to be. We almost create an idol out of marriage in the church, don't we? We kind of elevate it almost to like a salvific level. Like the, prob- the reason why you're incomplete is you're not married. And we create these sort of cultural norms where we tend to think less of people who are single. We tend to reason in our own minds for why they're single or why they're not enough because they're still single. And we've created these really unbiblical ideas about singleness and marriage. Can I remind you that Jesus was single? Wasn't he? In fact, you know, there's a lot of debate around the early years of Paul's life. Paul was single as well. He talks about the state that he's in, that God calls some people in seasons and stages of life to be single. And I would just, you know, I would have us think about, um, Jesus lived a pretty fulfilled life, I would say. You know, I don't think Jesus was missing something. I don't think there was an incompleteness in his life. And we tend to do the complete opposite. We tend to treat people as lesser than. And we tend to treat others as greater than because of marriage or, or singleness. And this permeates the hearts of singles as well. So in the church today, you have this idea where people go, man, I can only really have a substantial relationship with God. I can only be truly fulfilled. I, you know, I'll have all my problems solved if I just get married. And there's some married people laughing in the room, right? Because the truth about marriage is it's like, if I get married, my problems will go away. It's like, well, no, the, see, they don't because you're in the marriage. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in my marriage. And so my problems are still here because I am my own worst problem in so many ways. And in fact, what marriage does, it just surfaces new levels and aspects of problems that you've been neglecting that now your wife sees and calls out on you each and every morning. Okay. Um, So in the church, we've had our own broken ideas about marriage. We created an idol out of it in so many ways. Yes, it's valuable and important, but it it is not the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is not, if you can get married, you can find meaning and salvation and hope. The gospel of Jesus is this, that Jesus came to restore you to the ultimate fulfilling relationship. It's a relationship with your creator. It's a relationship with God himself. Now, in as much as we have elevated in the church marriage to become everything, like culture, From a practical standpoint, the church has functionally lived as though marriage really is nothing. We might have all the best definitions about biblical marriage, but we have lost our moral authority. The church in these these times are just racked and plagued with divorce and scandal. Ministry leaders to church members, um, it, it seems like this is just unfortunately, a stain on the ministry and witness of the church in our culture. We have approached marriage with different definitions, but with almost the same heart attitude as the world. It's a heavy, serious thing. And I think there's something to this. 
we think to and back to the fall of man. The, the, the moment in time where we as humanity seized our autonomy from God and said, God, I don't want to live dependent and on you and centered around you. I kind of want to do things my way. At the very, did you, did you realize this? At the very center of the fall of man was a broken marital dynamic. A broken marital communication system was at the heart of the fall. And we see the effects of that everywhere that we look. And it's into that brokenness. It's into those flawed views and understanding. It's into that, listen, that range of experience. And every person in this room, in some form or fashion, has been negatively impacted by brokenness in marriage, whether directly or indirectly. And aren't you glad that it's into those darkest spaces that the gospel of Jesus shines all the more brighter? Like, this is what's so good about the Lord. He gets into the deepest, darkest crevices with the good news. The gospel is not just like a surface-level happiness. It's an in-depth, transformative truth. It works at the very core of who we are and at the very deepest places of our brokenness, especially around the topic of marriage and our experience of that. In Ephesians 5, obviously that passage we read, it lays it out so clearly. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives, again, a robust vision here um, of what marriage should be of what God intended it to be, uh, ultimately to lead us almost in a contrast to how we tend to think about it. Uh, again, the focus in this passage is marriage in Christ. Yeah, there's marriage in culture. There's marriage in the church. But then there's what Paul gives here, a vision of what God is seeking to make us into as individuals and as married couples. And here's kind of the three main ideas that Paul gives about marriage, as he gives us a clear vision of what God is seeking to restore and redeem in our marriage relationships. He offers this, and we'll go through each of these, the what, the who, and the why of marriage. That each of these kind of fly in the face of the church and secular cultural uh, viewpoints of marriage. The what, the who, it's a great band, by the way, and the why, the what, the who, and the why. Let's look back at this passage, and we're going to just kind of piggyback off a couple of the key verses here, mainly verse 31 in Ephesians 5. Uh, the first thing we have here is the what of marriage. I mean, what are we talking about? We have culture's idea, we have the church's idea, but what does God think about? What did he intend for marriage? What is it? What is the biblical view of, of marriage? And for that, notice what Paul does. In Ephesians 5.31, Paul gives the classic biblical um, sort of like the, the premise, the main verse, the thesis around what biblical marriage is. Paul, by the way, I want you to notice this. He quotes from Genesis chapter 2. Let me remind you, Jesus does this as well. When Jesus is questioned about marriage, I, I want to make this point. At the end of the day, how you feel about marriage. Maybe you're here today and you have a more liberal understanding of marriage. You might be here today and you have a more hyper-conservative view of marriage. At the end of the day, the question comes down to, listen closely, whose authority are you submitting to? Whose authority on marriage do you put yourself under? And, and at the, I mean, that's really, at the end of the day, it's, like, it's kind of like, whose authority do you agree with? And as followers of Jesus, you know, we, we honor the scriptures as the ultimate authority because Jesus said all authority has been given to him. We follow him. He's alive from the dead. He's Lord and Savior. And Jesus himself had a high view of the Bible. So if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to submit to the same authority he submitted to, which is the word of God. 
That, that was his authority. It really comes down to that. Is it, are you the authority of what marriage is? Is culture, is, is, the, is the group thought process the authority on marriage? As a follower of Jesus, I don't bring my feelings into that. I just say, I just really believe Jesus is alive from the dead. He's Lord and Savior. The gospel is good and true news. And so what he says, I believe. And Jesus does the same thing Paul does. He upholds the authority of God's word as the standard to understand marriage. And he submits to that. Uh, and he quotes from Genesis 2.24. Jesus does the same thing in the Gospel of Matthew when he's questioned on divorce. Jesus is like, well, what, is, you know, what does the Bible say? That's what Jesus says. Paul does the same thing. And he quotes a, a verse here that comes out of the, the just really beautiful, poetic, and special historical narrative of what we'll call the first wedding ceremony ever. And there was never another like it since that day in Genesis 2. This comes right out of the story in Genesis 2, when after creating mankind, I love Genesis 1 gives us the, the macro lens. God creates man and woman in his image, says go be fruitful and multiply. Then Genesis 2 is like the docu-series on that. And it zooms in with a micro lens to see the details of what happened there. And it's a fascinating story as God is creating this 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 um, framework of life, and, and he, he creates man in his image to, to be in covenant with God, to partner with God, to carry forth the beauty of the world for, for the, the benefit of, other, of others and the glory of God. He takes man, he puts him in the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it. The word there is literally to make culture, to cultivate the earth, and take the raw resources that God's given us and draw beauty out of it. That's what we were all put on earth to do in our own way. And then up to this point, remember, God has been creating and approving of his work. If you're an artist, a songwriter, a painter, or a wordsmith, whatever you know, form of, everything's art these days, you know. It's like whatever form of art you have, okay. You're like, I play Fortnite. Okay, that's art, all right. Like, whatever form of art you participate in, you know the creative process is a lot like this, right. You create and you go, okay, that's, that's okay, next, good, right. And sometimes you're creating, you're like, no, nah, I'm going to delete that. I had that. I do that. I did that this morning as I was writing the sermon. I was like, Mm-mm, no, okay, let's take that out. Um, should we put that in? We'll find out. Okay. Now, that's the creative process. Now, as God is creating, He's just kind of seeing what's coming to be, and He doesn't make any errors, right? So He creates, and it's this creative kind of viewing, and He's like, "That's good. The birds of the air, that's good. The creatures of the sea, that's good. The stars in the heaven, that's good." He creates man, and He goes, "Look at man, all lonely, right? Like, that's." That's not, that's not good. It's, it's not good. It's just not good, man left to himself. It's just not a good situation. God's like, this isn't good. He needs, he needs help. <laughs> you know? Look at him, okay? This is just a beautiful expression of the created process of God. He sees man as, as listen, incomplete in and of himself to carry out the work that God has put before him. Isn't that cool? He goes... I'm going to make a companion for him, a helper. Same word that's used, by the way, of the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of inferiority. The Holy Spirit is not inferior to those he's helping. Amen? So God says, I'm going to make a compatible companion to come alongside, not to be behind you, not to be ahead of you, but to come alongside of you, to partner with you in this work that I've called you to. And you two together are going to be Miles ahead better than you could ever be alone. And so notice the process. So out of the ground, the Lord God, this is, I, I love how God makes Adam aware of what God is aware of. God creates Adam. He's like, you're alone. That's not a good thing. 
Now I need to make you aware of it. So I'm going to bring you, notice this, out of the ground, every beast of the field, every bird of the field, brought them to Adam to see what he would call them, whatever uh, Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, the birds of the air, every beast of the field. <laughs> I love that this is in that context. But for Adam, there was no helper that was comparable to him, you know? And Adam was like, he was noticing, like, there's Mr. and Mrs. Rhinoceros, you know? Like, do you get that? Isn't it beautiful, this, the way the story, and he just goes, the more I see you two together, the more I see myself alone. And I don't see a helper, thank God, comparable to him. He's not like, I'll just settle for that monkey or something. He's like, that'll preach. All right. Um, and so God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. It's a great reminder here that it's the sovereign work of God to bring a spouse into your life. As we rest in the Lord and he does his work, he fashions the perfect partner for each of us. And that happens as Adam sleeps and the Lord takes one of his ribs and closes up the flesh in his place. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman. And just imagine you're Adam. And again, up until this point, all you've seen is the animal kingdom. And this is, a, this is an R-rated, epic, special, intimate, holy, holy R-rated moment. Holy R-rated moment. I just said that. It says this, that he made the woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam doesn't know what to do. He just starts singing a song. He's just like, ha, ah, he just starts singing. He's so <laughs> overwhelmed that he breaks out into high school musical song. He's like, no, honestly, he's blown away at what God has done. He sees his loneliness. He knows his need. And God, as the perfect matchmaker, brings Adam the right woman that he needs for his life. And he is just thankful to God. Wow, God. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. for She was taken out of man. Now, that is now, check us out. This is the precedent for what Paul quotes for marriage. Therefore, this is important. A man shall leave his father and mother. Now, here's the precedent for marriage. And like Adam and Eve should be joined and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, so there's a key event that, that marks the nature of Adam and Eve's relationship. There's a key marker. There's a key detail. They're, they're not merely together. They're not merely Facebook official. That's not a thing anymore. Uh, they're not merely whatever, okay? It's not merely public, they're not merely just a unit. They're not just together. But the Bible says that, that here's the nature of marriage. They are now joined together. They're joined together as one. This is, let me, let me say it this way. This is covenantal language. The contrast is that of a man with his family. That's its own covenantal relationship. Uh, let, let me take a step back here. Uh, there's two kinds of general relationships in this world. There are consumer relationships and there are covenant relationships. And for the next five to ten minutes, we can thank Dr. Tim Keller, the late great Dr. Tim Keller, for his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which I highly recommend to you if you're fascinated with this stuff as I am. Uh, and in that book, Tim Keller describes the difference between these two relationships, consumer and covenant. You, you see, a consumer relationship, uh, Keller describes, is, is, is the relationship that, that, that you would have, say, uh, with your local grocer or your local coffee shop. Wherever, wherever there's a vendor and you're a consumer, that's a consumer relationship. And in that relationship, the relationship exists as long as you are getting what you want 
at the price you want, right? You, sometimes you like don't get what you want. But you're like, it didn't cost that much, so I guess I'll still come back here, okay? Um, or, or whatever. Or maybe you go, I'm willing to sacrifice a lot for this because of how quality the product is. That's a consumer vendor relationship. And in that relationship, listen closely, your own personal needs outweigh the value of the relationship. That's a consumer relationship. Your needs are more important than the relationship. Now, the contrast with the consumer relationship is being joined together in covenant. It's a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship, as we saw there in the passage, is similar to that of a parent and their kids. That's the covenant relationship that Adam leaves, or that a man leaves, and then will join with his wife in that covenant. It's like you move from one covenantal relationship to another. Now, how many of us know as parents that uh, the parent-child relationship is unfortunately not a consumer-vendor relationship? If anything, they're the consumers and we're the vendors, okay? But in a parent-child relationship, you know, if our kids are not meeting our needs... Most of the time, if, they're, if our happiness is not the result of, of every moment together, we don't have the option of saying, well, I'm just going to go find new kids, okay? Like, you guys have been great. You're really sweet, all right? I think the neighbors will prefer you. We're just going to drop you on their doorstep and just Godspeed, you know? It's a covenantal relationship. It's an inseparable responsibility. And, and that's the context that God's word gives for stepping into marriage. It's a joining together in covenant. Let me say this too. Adam and Eve, they're joined together, not just physically. That's certainly an aspect of that covenant, to consummate that covenant. They're joined together romantically. They're, they're certainly joined together um, emotionally. But covenant is a whole nother level of union. Um, in covenant, what you're doing is you're committing, listen, to the commitment. You're committing to the commitment. This is what a wedding ceremony is. I've had the great joy and privilege of officiating a lot of weddings. Actually, a lot of you guys, I did your wedding. And it's, 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 really, it's the best thing because it's the best seat in the house. You get the best view, literally. You're like, you get to see everything. And you, you just get to celebrate the great joy of, of, of the love between a couple. And in a ceremony, every ceremony, you'll have some version. In that, that public gathering where this couple is entering covenant, what they do is they make certain vows and promises. Vow and promise is the basis of covenant. I'm stepping into this relationship with you. I'm joining together with you. I'm being bound together with you as one. And here is my promise to keep up my end of the bargain here. And it's a really beautiful thing. Tim Keller argues, and really maybe argues is too harsh of a word, because he beautifully displays how it's this relationship between a couple, a covenant relationship, where, where Jesus said where God brings two people, Two people together, which is really cool. I, I've been thinking about that recently with weddings. Jesus taught that the covenantal union, it's not like I as the pastor have some power to be like, you are now one, you know. There, there's certainly vows and promises, but the Bible says that actually it's God who does the joining. Isn't that interesting? What a mystery that he joins two people together. And the Bible teaches that what God has joined together, Jesus said, let not man separate. That's a covenant. That, that's a commitment. Now in this relationship, Keller argues you have the breeding ground for these four things. In, in a hookup culture, covenant is providing in marriage what our culture is ultimately longing for. We think it's romance, don't we? 
We think it's feeling. We think it's passion. We think it's experience. We just want the kind of relationship that people can subscribe to on Instagram. Do you know what I mean? And we conflate these fake, phony, artificial ideas about marriage. Covenant's where it's at. We know our God is a covenant-keeping, covenant-making God, and he calls us to that in our relationship. Tim Keller argues that it's within covenant that you have the opportunity for each of these four things in the most meaningful way. First, in covenant, you have the opportunity for intimacy. The reason why you have the opportunity for intimacy in covenant, contrasting, like, in compared to, like, just being together and being really committed, even living together, is because it's in covenant that you're actually, you have the security of the relationship. Because covenant, it no longer matters, like, who, who you know, how great you are. Because the truth is, you get married, and you're like, okay, you were, were you tricking me, this whole dating relationship? Because I, and who you are just continues to come out. That's why you should make sure you, you have a good season of testing and dating to get to know as much of them as possible. But in marriage, you see, at the end of the day, it's no longer, in Brittany and I's relationship, it's no longer our performance that maintains our commitment. I don't have to keep my best foot forward. Like in a dating relationship, you've always got to do your best to keep them around. There is an unspoken reality that they can leave at any time. But Covenant says, in the words of Ruth Bell Graham, divorce never. Murder, maybe. Maybe murder. But not divorce. It's, in, it's this inseparable unit. And that, listen, that covenant, Keller says it this way, it's, it provides a cradle of security for vulnerability. For you to be truly naked and unashamed with all that you are. You're free, because you're not having to put on some show to keep them around. That's a miserable kind of relationship. And that's where true intimacy comes from. Honest knowing of one another. It's also the breeding ground for stability. As a married couple, Brittany and I, we've had, we've had our seasons. And if you've been married long enough, you know that there's just seasons. We haven't had all mountaintops. And if you have, please write a book on it and put me in the foreword or something, okay? And say, this is for Andrew, okay? I dedicate this book to Andrew. Um, life is unstable. I'm unstable, okay? Um, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise God, right? Praise God, Jimmy. Um, But in the midst of instability, what the marriage covenant provides is there's a reliable relationship here. No matter what we go through, things are going to get rocky, things are going to get tough, but in 10 years, we're going to look back and thank God that we continued. Stability. By the way, this is how God functions with us. Amen? It's, it's not his love for us, you know, emotionally that sustains his commitment. It's his covenant-keeping faithfulness that sustains his love. Same in the marriage relationship. When you're dating, it's your love that maintains the commitment. But what happens is usually um, we confuse love with like, you know. When you get married, what happens is you think you fell out of love, but you really just fell out of like. Because you're married to uh, what's called a human. And they do human things. <laughs> They do unlikable things. They have unlikable ways. But you have the love of God to provide stability. i got to run through these now. Liberty and beauty. Those are the other two things Keller argues are are really central to covenant. In covenant, you have actually, people would say, I don't want to be married. I don't want to be bound in that relationship. Marriage seems so binding. I want to be free. And this is a lie, by the way, a lie of the devil, 
that makes you think that the most free you can be is to be as available to what you want as possible. And how many of us know that is not freedom? There's no freedom to lose weight if you just have the freedom to do whatever you want. There's no freedom to live a healthy spiritual life if you're bound to your desires. And so Keller talks about this. It's great. Just read the book, and I'll stop preaching on it. But Keller teaches that essentially discipline is at the essence of any true freedom. That it's through discipline that we find true freedom. And in the covenant relationship is where you're free to become really all that God created you to be. And you're free to experience the, the kind of love of God that, that he wants in and through you. So there's liberty there. There's not bondage. And there's also, I think we just, this might be, obviously, beauty can be subjective at times. But I would say in the marriage relationship, you have beauty. An unmatched beauty. I know the Instagram thing and the, the filters on the kiss and the cliff and the, uh, we love it. Which, like, did you see, I saw an ad recently that statistically, the more couples post about their love for each other on social media, the more doomed their relationship actually is behind the scenes. So I, that's not a shot at anybody. I'm not sure. Are we clapping for that, Jordan? <laughs> Everybody look at Jordan's Instagram later and make sure there's no pictures of him and Amber. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, but there's, come on, we know this, right? We know, and, but that's what's trendy. That's what's sexy in culture is this relationship that's public. And I'll tell you, man, you know what's the most beautiful kind of relationship? A relationship that has weathered the storms of life together. A relationship that has continued despite it being cool and loving and dovey and all the things that we fill in the blanks with. The marriage covenant is the most beautiful. And that's just, that's just the truth, okay? We'll wrap up here. The who. Obviously, this is a central part of the marriage journey. We, we understand the what there, laying a foundation for what marriage is. It's a joining together in covenant, a binding commitment that is actually the breeding ground for all the good things that a relationship is intended to be. As we step into that covenant, we move from consumers to those in covenant. But a, a really important question to this is obviously, like, who we're married to. Now, there, there's one angle to go here, which is to give a reminder of the biblical definition that Paul gives, that Jesus does as well, that, that simply speaking, um, the, the, Jesus submits to a biblical understanding of marriage being between uh, a male and female. This is, the, this is Jesus' understanding of the marriage covenant. Uh, there is one kind of marriage covenant from Jesus' perspective. It's, it's one man and it's one woman. And scripture gives a clear uh, distinction between those two genders where culturally we've sort of blurred the lines, and there's a lot of complication around that that should be understood a little bit more in the church, more than just talking points. There should be more conversation and compassion with people that are wrestling through these things. But from a biblically honest standpoint, Jesus himself, I'm just following Jesus. He says from the beginning he made male and female. There's a gender distinction there, and those are the two parties that make up a marriage relationship. It's, it's not one man and two women. It's not, um, you know... A one woman and two men. It's not one man and one man. It's, it's, it's a simple equation of one man and one woman. This is Jesus' understanding of who's a married couple. But let me say this to be more practical, because for those of us that have a more conservative biblical understanding of this, we're just kind of nodding our heads. But I think I need to say this too. Um, who? The who of marriage? A man or a woman? But let me say this. But Scripture would also say not just any man or woman, Okay? It's like, all right, well, you're, I'm, a, you know, I'm a man, you're a woman. I guess that's it. That's all we need. Now we can get married. No, like, Scripture will also caution us regarding the who. There's wisdom. There's certain, uh, there's certain especially in the book of Proverbs, uh, the, the, the author of Proverbs will, will caution men to avoid certain kinds of women. 
Women that will, will draw them in but lead to their destruction. Ladies, Proverbs will caution you to avoid what, 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 he, what the Proverbs call uh, this, this man called a fool that doesn't have his life in order, doesn't have his priorities straight, doesn't fear the Lord. So, so the scripture doesn't just say find the opposite sex and go for it, you know? Put a ring on it, okay? It's like settle down, okay? Slow down. There's, there's a balance here. Um, here's what the, what the scripture says. I want to remind us of this. Proverbs 18.22 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. There's this mystery in marriage where it's both the product of our own seeking. Notice it's something that we find. The spouse is something that's found. But it's also something that God is involved in providing. And, and there's, there's a balance there, I think, in navigating the who um, if I could summarize this to a phrase, I guess I would say it this way. Um, if you're looking for a spouse, I would encourage you to seek, but don't settle. Seek, but don't settle. First of all, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't settle for someone who vaguely resembles God's best for your life. Vaguely resembles God's best for your life. Don't settle. Have a, listen, agree with God that you have worth by having a standard. You cost something. You're made in the image of God. Your life is valuable. Who you are as someone's wife, that matters. Don't settle. Men and women, don't settle. But also, like, don't exaggerate at the end of the day, too, right? Like, if, if you're spending your life waiting for the Lord to provide your spouse and you're not seeking practically and you're not, you don't have a realistic expectation. You know, I love when we write out, like, what kind of spouse we're looking for. It's like, I want them to be like this. I want them to read their Bible this many times a day. I want them to have this kind of a history. I want them to have this kind of a career. And, like, we create basically Jesus, you know. <laughs> I want them to be Jesus. And there's two problems with that. Number one, when you compare yourself to that standard, like, are you someone's standard is the first question. <laughs> That's a great, isn't that a good question? I was like, am I someone else's standard before I create this, like, avenger of a spouse, you know. Spouse man. Um, that, was, that was embarrassing. Sorry I said that. Um, but also, here's the other problem. No matter who you're going to marry, they're not Jesus. And so what we're looking for is what I would submit to you. Here's what we're praying for God to provide in our lives when we're seeking a spouse. He who finds a spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We're seeking imperfect compatibility. We're not looking for imperfect incompatibility. We're not like, don't look, incompatibility is a thing, okay? There's such a thing as like, not that, nope, not them. But, but there's no such thing as perfect compatibility because at the end of the day, you have a sin nature and you're marrying someone that um, you will find as much as you're like, we've never had a fight. Okay, that's cute, all right? But at the end of the day, life will present its own challenges and problems and you will find that if you were seeking perfection, you were looking in the wrong relationship. So imperfect compatibility is so important. And because we have three minutes left, I thought I'd give you four. <laughs> hey, married couples, can we help? Like, we can help out our single friends here, okay? Like, and, and, and they're not lesser than us. We're not better than them. In fact, we get married and we're like, I might be lesser than you. I found out who I really am. But, like, for me, this, is, um, this has been a framework I've used since even being a youth pastor and... <laughs> You know, it's like the favorite topic of, of high school students is like, you know, dating and courtship and all that jazz. But um, uh, four things that I think will prove helpful to you as you're navigating perfect incompatibility, perfect 
or imperfect compatibility, excuse me, with, with a spouse. First is, I would just say, like, attraction is an important thing. When you read the Song of Songs, like, most, when, when you see, most cases in the Bible where there's a man in love with, with like, who's getting with the woman as his wife, that's a, that's a dicey sentence, there's, like, a lot of songs sung of amazement about them. Like, Adam's song is one verse. Solomon wrote a whole album. And he's just like, you're amazing. You're the only woman I see. So there's, there should be this level of attraction. There's something about you that stands out to me. Among all the other flowers, you're the brightest, the most beautiful. I'm attracted to you in body, soul, and spirit. Because we know beauty is fleeting. That's a part of it. But we know there's something so much more substantial. That. So there should be some level of, I'm attracted to your personality, whether it's, it's you know, like, that's what Brittany told me. It's like, it's your humor, it's your shirt, it's your hair, it's your weirdness, you know? <laughs> alignment. Listen, also, alignment is really important. In, in the Song of Songs, Solomon calls, it's a really beautiful verse where Solomon calls his wife, as he's praising her, he calls her my sister, my friend. I love that. Like, when, it talks, when you talk about the stability of a covenant, one of the things that gives stability to the, the meaning of that covenant is a friendship. You know what a marriage relationship is? It's a friendship and covenant. I think for my wife and I, the thing that's really been able to get us through so many troubled times is at the end of the day, even if we're having an argument, we'll make each other laugh <laughs> and we'll kind of diffuse the room. At the end of the day, we're best friends and there should be that with this person. There should be a friendship that you can commit your life to. There should be alignment with your personalities. Like, it's just true that there's some people that you just click with more than others. That's okay. Right? That's okay. And it's okay to be like, I don't know, like, I'm attracted to you, but, like, I don't know if there's an alignment here. Like, you never laugh at my jokes. I never laugh at yours. Now, it's imperfect, but there should be some. Someone just wrote down, they have to laugh at my jokes. Okay, check. <laughs> Standard point number one. And then number three, a big one here, agreement. It should be number one, but agreement. This, this has to do with spiritual alignment. We don't want to be unequally yoked in a marriage relationship. That doesn't just affect your own relationship with God. It's going to affect how you parent. It's going to affect the target of your life. So do we agree about who God is? Do we agree about the gospel? Do we agree about central doctrine? Do we agree about the purpose of our lives? Do we agree about, listen, what our lives are ultimately for? Do we agree on values? A house divided can't stand. So is there agreement? And lastly, don't you love this one? Approval. There's got to be some approval. Sometimes we can take this to too high of a level, and uh, it becomes more lording than helpful from people. But, like, I would say, like, you should invite other people into your relationship. And you, you should have, like, you shouldn't be the only person checking the person for flags. You should bring some other, you know, safety patrol into that thing. And, and help you out. There should be some level of approval and, and communal agreement. Like, hey, this is, yeah, I think this is the one for you. Or like, I, no. And here's why. Here's why. Uh, regardless, I'll invite Jimmy to close this out here. Here's where this all comes back to as we close. And I think this is what centers everything for us in our relationships, and it's the why. You have the what, and that is this joining together, this covenantal relationship. You have the who, and it's the person that God chooses for you, that he provides as you seek. You don't settle, but you seek what he provides according to his word and his ways. 
But what brings us back to center, even as we leave here, what, what makes this most applicable to us, regardless of where we fall today in marriage, some of us are single, some of us are married, some of us are widowed. Some of us were married and now we're single. There's all sorts of, of different standpoints in this. But here's the one thing that we all have in common, or that I pray we all have in common. It's the reason why marriage ultimately exists. Ultimately exists. There's a lot of reasons why marriage exists that we could spend time on. But Paul at the end of Ephesians here, as he's describing a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Paul says this, this is a great mystery. I love this. But Paul goes, but I'm speaking about Christ and the church. This is what we're going to get into next week, how the function of a marriage relationship exists not for simply itself, but it exists as a mirror of a greater relationship. This is what marriage at its best is modeling and showcasing to the world who God is as a covenant-keeping, faithful God who keeps his promises, who continues to walk with us despite our performance, who's not looking for us to have our best hair day spiritually to really like us. But Paul says that the marriage relationship at the end of the day, and this is not just a New Testament thing. It's certainly revealed most clearly through Christ. But this is all throughout the Old Testament, whether it's Hosea being called to go marry an unfaithful woman to display the covenant faithfulness of God's love. At the end of the day, here's the point. We're in a world that's longing for covenantal love. They don't know it. And one of the ways that we can bring them to that covenantal love is to model it in our relationships. Marriage exists to show that to the world. A world filled with lust and passion, it's covenantal love that will stand the test of time and ultimately fulfill us. And that's what we are ultimately created for. And I want to, as we close again, I'll invite the team. Won't you guys come out? Uh, as we close out here, I want us to sing as we leave the same song that we sang on the way in. And that's the song, Build My Life. And I just want you to think today, is it really God's love and his love for you that you're building your life on? Which is really the only true source for functioning well in marriage. It's the only, it's the only source to truly be fulfilled in singleness. It's God, may I ultimately build my life on your love. Have I made an idol out of marriage in any way? when this thing is really just supposed to point to a greater love and a greater relationship. So as we enter into this time, I want us to, wherever we fall, again, take a moment to recenter our hearts in this song, and then I'll send us out as this moment ends.